Well, I'm going to jump in to our Advent series. This is, of course, week two of our Advent series. Um, And if you joined us last week, you realize that what we're doing in the four weeks of Advent is taking a look at each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one each week, at the very specific picture they write in their biography of Jesus in that gospel. Now, obviously, all four of them agree on the major issues. They all tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. He was born as a human. He went to the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. He lives forever, and he's coming back again. But each of the four gospel writers also adds kind of their specific touch on it, emphasizing one aspect, which is the reason I think that God gave us four gospels rather than just one. And so the four emphases of the four gospels we saw last week, Matthew's is he's the Savior or the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the promise to the Hebrew people. So he's the Savior. Mark's, which we'll look at this week, is that he's a servant. He's a servant of all humankind, eventually the ultimate suffering servant as he goes to the cross. Luke tells us it's not just for for the uh, Jewish people, but he's the Savior, the sacrifice for all mankind. And John reminds us that, hey, this isn't just an ordinary human. This is the Son of God. He's divine. So this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the emphases. Now, last week, we did look at Matthew's gospel. Jesus is a fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. And today, we're going to look at the book of Mark. Mark, the servant of humankind. Now, Mark sometimes is referred to as a neglected gospel. I think that's for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is in the early church fathers' writings and comments, they wrote a lot about Matthew, Luke, and John, but very little about Mark. It's also the shortest of the four Gospels. And in fact, 90% of the content of the book of Mark, you also have repeated in one or more of the other three Gospels. So only 10% of Mark is really just specific to Mark that he reports about Jesus' life. Now, I think there's a reason that he's short and succinct and to the point and all the stories are really short and powerful and boom, they get to the end really quickly. Because Mark was the first one, as far as we know, to write the gospel. It's the first gospel that was written. And he was probably writing for mostly non-literate communities who couldn't read. So they would memorize, someone would memorize these stories and tell them orally to the rest of the community. And in these short, little, crisp statements, instead of long, lengthy sermons like you'll find in Matthew, it was easier to remember. Well, short or not, Um, And neglected or not, Matthew tells us that Jesus was the servant of humankind, and that will pinnacle in becoming the suffering servant. So how does he accomplish this? Let's talk about Mark for a little bit. He actually does this by dividing his book in two. He does it in two halves, Uh, the first half being the first eight chapters, and then the second half being all the chapters that are remaining after that. Um, And in the first eight chapters, he basically agrees with Matthew saying, hey, this was a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. This is the Messiah. He's divine. He's come from God. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And then he starts ramping up all the acts of service that Jesus did for other people. And eventually pointing to the cross in the second half of the book. That's when he starts to talk about the cross and Jesus talks about the cross 
So he'll ultimately give the sacrificial, ultimate act of sacrificial service for all mankind. So if you look at his gospel in the very beginning, you're not introduced to Jesus. The first one you're introduced is to John the Baptist. That's the beginning. John the Baptist is in the wilderness. He's baptizing people who come to him, turning back to God. And we're open up with a quote from the book of Isaiah, which says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this person of Jesus comes from God, and John knows that, and now he's going to be baptized. So he becomes baptized not because he needs to repent, but because he's identifying with humankind uh, in that moment. He's God come from earth, but he identifies with all humans and being baptized. He comes out of the water just like in Matthew's gospel this is a divine son of God who now is shown to be also human. Now, immediately after that comes the story of the temptation in the wilderness. So immediately, Jesus is put out in the wilderness with Satan. Satan tempts him three times, and Jesus obviously defeats him very easily three times. So very quickly in the book of Mark, you've read about a minute into his gospel, you find out that Jesus is a man, but he's more powerful than Satan something very divine about him. And then, after he shows that, this is who he is, his character, then it's what he does. Mark turns to story after story after story about him, Jesus, serving humankind. Serving and serving and serving. He delivers people. He heals people. I mean, bunches of people he hears. A barrage of miracles are recorded right back to back against each other, including a demoniac that's uh, so fearsome that nobody has anything to do with him, and Jesus casts the demons out of him, and also the paralyzed man, if you remember the story of the paralyzed man that four friends brought to Jesus, he couldn't get in the front door, and so they took off the roof of the house, and they dropped him down into the house to the roof, and Jesus heals that man while forgiving his sins at the same time. Service after service after service. It happens for eight chapters. And then after chapter 8, actually verse 31 is the key turning point where Jesus starts to preach a different message. In addition to what he's shown who he is, he begins to preach this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is the first time Jesus begins to point to the cross. Now you know who I am. You see the power that I have. You know that I'm human, but you also know that I'm from God. I'm the answer to a promise about the Messiah to the Hebrew people that they waited for years. But this also, you have to know how this story ends. It ends at the cross and resurrection, okay? And so this is what he begins to point to from this point out. And the key verse in all of this of the second half comes in chapter 10, verse 45, when it's recorded in the book of Mark that Jesus says this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this verse, in this verse, Jesus, Mark has pointed out Jesus's whole point, his theme of both his death and his life he came to serve and not to be served. That's a huge point in the book of Mark. 
but also to give his life as a ransom for many. So he will serve humankind by healing, by delivering, by meeting needs, by feeding, but ultimately he's going to become the suffering servant by going to the cross on all of our behalf. And that leads into chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, what happens is Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, right? And this seems like a humble act, but it's actually fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah when he comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, okay? So this is actually, as he goes into Jerusalem on the, on the, sitting on a donkey, right? People are laying down their palm leaves in front of them, and the whole city is rejoicing because they see this as a fulfillment too. This is the first time, the first time that Jesus publicly declares who he is, the Messiah. Up until this time, he kept it quiet. In fact, um, four times he healed people who wanted to tell other people who he was, and he said, don't tell them. Demons that he cast out of people were saying, I know you, you're the son of God. And he would silence them so no one would hear them. Twice he told his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All before this time, right? In fact, scholars call it the messianic secret in Messiah. Why? Um, In Mark. Why? Well, I think if you understand it, he waited until chapter 8, verse 31 to talk about the cross, you understand. How did the Jewish people think that the Messiah was going to come? What were they expecting? Well, they were expecting a king. They were expecting a soldier. They were expecting deliverance from the Romans, right? It's going to rise up and deliver them out of the shackles of the Roman legions and conquer a great nation so they can be politically free. But that's not who Jesus was, right? So as he rides in Jerusalem, that's what people want to really put him up to. They want to receive him according to the Messiah. But he all along has tamped down all the expectations of the Messiah for that type of Messiah because he has much, much greater enemies to destroy than the Roman army, than the Roman legions, and than the emperor, right? He has the three greatest enemies of mankind that he has to conquer, sin, Satan, and death. Sin, Satan, and death. And that is only going to be accomplished through the cross. Now, Mark may actually be the first person in history to understand that the Messiah wasn't going to be a warrior, right? I mean, the disciples, it took them forever to get this through their head, right? They were shocked when Jesus died, right? And they, some of them even had a hard time believing that he rose from the dead. Mark may be the, one of the first people to actually um, believe that. He's certainly one of the first to write about it in his gospel as his gospel, actually, as far as we know, was the first gospel of the four that was written during that time. Now, at this point last week, when I talked about Matthew's emphasis on being the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus is the coming Messiah, I asked this question, so I'm going to ask it this week as well. So what? What difference does it make? We're celebrating Advent, right? We're celebrating the birth of Christ. It may have been interesting to find this out about Mark, but does it make any difference in how I should worship Jesus at the manger and how I should live during the Advent season? And I say it does. I say it does. First of all, remember the original purpose of Advent, 
And for some of you who didn't tune in to us or didn't, weren't here last week, um, I ran through a long history of the Advent season that we know started around the 5th century A.D. and probably around the 3rd century A.D., but the original Advent season of four weeks was about celebrating both comings of Jesus. The first coming that already happened, but also the second coming that we're still waiting for when he comes back, not as a baby born in a manger, but as a king to set up his kingdom forever, right? And they used two weeks to look back and two weeks to look forward. In other words, it was all about how to live life in between. And we're in the same boat. We may be living hundreds of years after the original Advent season started in the history of the church, but we're still living in the in-between. We look back at the birth of Christ, and we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. And I think Mark's gospel has a great effect on how we should live in the in-between. In summary, remember, God's, uh, Mark's gospel, in looking back at the first coming, proclaims that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he's a servant of mankind, and he will eventually serve in the death for all mankind and be raised from the dead, and we should celebrate that. We should celebrate his victory over Satan, sin, and death as we celebrate Christmas this season. But he's also looking at the second coming of Christ and saying, hey, this Jesus was a servant who is going to come back. So how should we live if we're going to imitate Jesus? We should live as servants. We should live in how to serve others. And this becomes even clearer when you understand the history of Mark himself, the author of this gospel. As far as we know, by the way, this Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. You understand that, right? He's not one of the 12 names of disciples. In fact, only two of the gospels are written by disciples. That's Matthew and John. But the other two were written to, by believers who came to Christ after the fact, Mark and Luke. They both came to Jesus later in that fact. So this Mark is not a disciple who followed Jesus in the beginning, but he's, as far as we can tell, the John Mark who is mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned early in the book of Acts, when Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, they go on a voyage together, a missionary trip to win people to Christ and start churches across all of Asia, and they take John Mark with them. But in the middle of that trip, it gets tough, and he bails on them. He leaves because it was too hard for him. So that's okay. They finish the trip. They start churches. They come back to the original church. They're reporting and rejoicing and all that God has done. They decide to go out again, and Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul says, no way. He bailed. I'm not taking him again. I'm taking someone who's more faithful. And the argument was so great, it says in the book of Acts, that the two of them split. And Paul took Silas. And for the rest of the book of Acts, all we know about is Paul and Silas's trips. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and we don't hear about that anymore. But it turns out that John Mark turned out. And we know that for a couple different reasons. We know that because Paul, in writing to Timothy, and I'm going to read this section later, says, hey, if you get a chance, Timothy, bring John Mark because he is very helpful to me in the ministry, right? So Paul understood that later, after he got his second chance, he actually came out okay. He's also mentioned in 1 Peter 5.13. So he must have been with Peter in Rome where there was a great deal of persecution going on, 
but he didn't bail this time. So Mark gave up when it was tough and left, but he got a second chance. Sounds a lot like Peter, who denied Jesus three times but also came back. And then the gospel he wrote comes from this history where he says, you know what? It's going to get tough, but if we're going to imitate Jesus, then we need to imitate him even if it gets tough, which is why Mark records the words of Jesus when Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. A call to severe discipleship, strong discipleship. You know, we looked at Matthew's call last week, right? And Matthew says, you know, Jesus said, hey, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and all of that's true. And Mark reminds us that, yeah, he said that, but he also said this. He also said it's going to get tough sometimes, and sometimes it's going to be a challenge. And he's speaking from personal experience. So all of this leads to how I think Mark is telling us to celebrate both our look back at the Christmas season and Jesus being born, but also waiting for the coming Jesus who's going to come back a second time to set up his kingdom. And I think it tells us three ways that we should live our life. First is that this gospel is an encouragement, be strong in view of the cost. Be strong in view of the cost, okay? I want to read to you from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, here are the words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But then keep listening. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Can you think about Mark who bailed that one time? now was given a second chance, he was forgiven, how he's thinking about this as he's writing it, for whoever is ashamed of me, he writes, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Mark knew failure and Mark knew forgiveness. Now, we understand by the last thing that's written in Matthew's gospel that God's with us always, no matter what we do, no matter what happens to us. When we have, once we have Jesus in our lives, God says very clearly, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we're always going to have Jesus, but sometimes we still have to dig deep. We have to dig deep when we have questions about what's happening to our life and our prayers aren't answered exactly the way we hoped that they would be. And we have to dig deep. I remember when I was in Thailand uh, as a missionary, I lived for a time in the center of the northeast. It's a province called Konkan. And the northeast is the poorest section of Thailand. Um, it's very dry, so they don't get the nice crops that a lot of the rest of Thailand gets. And the neighboring province was Galasin. And in Galasin, I don't remember how I met this guy. I didn't lead him to the Lord, but somehow I met this guy who's the only Christian in his entire village. It's a Buddhist village, like almost all of Thailand. But he's a Christian. He's following Jesus, and he's the only one. He's not married, doesn't have a family. He's it. 
And so when I finally did find out about him, I went out and visited him. And then I used to get, you know, in my truck every Friday and drive out to Galician to see him and see how he's doing. And we would sit and talk, you know, and we would talk for hours sometimes. And it spent lots of times around Scripture, particularly the book of Galatians, what that really means to be free. But how do you use that freedom in a culture that believes everything different than you, right? And challenges you at every point. And he lived his life so like Jesus that even though the rest of the tribe there, the rest of the village, they didn't want to have anything to do with his religion and they wondered why he was different and they were waiting for something bad to him to happen to him because of God's. But they respected him immensely because he was ethical, he was moral, he was compassionate, he was loving. They actually elected him to the highest position you could get in a village, which is assistant to the chief, okay? You can't get elected as a chief, but you can get elected as assistant to the chief, which is an incredible work of honor. But that puts him in a precarious position because now he's the assistant to the chief and they're living in a Buddhist village and there's all kinds of Buddhist celebrations all the time. So if they go into Buddhist Lent, they're going to have a celebration. They're going to have idols there. The monks are going to come in and chant, and everybody's going to bow down to the idols. And what's he going to do? We used to talk about that, what that's going to cost him if he does it and if he doesn't do it. And he refused. He still loved. He still had compassion. He still lived like Jesus, but he wouldn't bow down to the idols. Mark is written to a man like that of saying it's an encouragement to be strong, even in view of the cost. Are you challenged to be silent about your faith? Because he was challenged, but he wasn't silent. Are you? Do you laugh at off-color jokes? Do you cheat on your tests or on your taxes? Have you ever talked about your faith to your neighbors, co-workers? I mean, did they not even know that you're a Christian? Mark encourages us to live in the in-between, between the birth of Jesus Christ and the second coming, to be strong in view of the cost. And he reminds us that a light, once it is lit, is not to be put under a basket. Secondly, I think this gospel is an encouragement to serve. It's an encouragement to serve. Of course it is. What's the key verse? 1045, right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that the main point of Mark's gospel? You know, it's not an option, serving other people. There's no boundaries on who you're supposed to serve and who you're not supposed to serve, or geography, where you're supposed to serve. It should be a philosophy of life, of us serving other people. But here's the thing. It's just as important for us to serve those outside the church as it is to serve those inside the church. In fact, although both are important, it actually might be more critical to serve those people outside the building rather than inside the building. Put in another way, um, what I'm saying is this. It's critical to serve those who have yet to believe. Than it, than it is actually to serve believers, okay? Let me explain. Inside, 
we're supposed to be a family. We're supposed to love each other. And we should be able to tell each other if we're having problems, we have needs. We should even understand and be able to discern whether we have needs and provision or encouragement, building each other up. But loving each other and serving each other in the church, that should be as natural as serving your own nuclear family, right? But if this is the only focus of the church, then we're never, ever going to accomplish the Great Commission, which is about leading people outside the building, right? Leading and serving people outside the church. And that takes specific effort. We have to realize that the whole world is in need. Some of it is obvious to us because they're in pain. But even those who are in pain, everybody needs to know the suffering servant. Everybody needs to know about Jesus. And, of course, when I'm saying outside, inside, I'm not talking about geography or building, right? doesn't matter where you serve. When we ask you to support the Christmas store that's inside the church, right, you're actually serving those outside the faith, families that need to know the love of Jesus. And when we, tonight, we're going to be hosting the Bravora Philharmonic Orchestra. We haven't done that in so long. We finally can have them back in the building. And I'm so glad we can do that. And some of you may attend that. Why do we do that? Because we're serving our community. Because we can. That's why we do it. Because we can. I mean, right now we're serving refugees, particularly Afghan refugees. What's their greatest need? A new house? Yeah. A new beginning? Yeah. Safety? Yeah. Language learning? Yeah. But what about their souls? What about their souls? This may be literally the first time they ever, ever, eventually, not right in the beginning, but eventually, have a chance to know about Jesus and who Jesus is in their lives. This book is an encouragement to serve, particularly those outside the faith. And then thirdly, this is an encouragement to keep looking forward and stop looking backward. Hey, we want to look backward at Christmas, right? We want to look backward at the, at the manger scene. We want to worship the Christ child as he has been given to us. This is a time of joy. We should be looking back. When I say don't look back, I mean don't look back on yourself. Always look forward. Advent is about the second coming, right? Focus on living in between as Mark did. Let me read to you this section of what Paul said about Mark. After vehemently denying that he wanted anything to do with John Mark when he was arguing with Barnabas, he said this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 11. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure have come. Oh, sorry, let me, I'm reading too early. Here it is. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There's another one who deserts Paul, right? Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Interesting. That's the gospel writer we'll look at next week. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Get Mark, because he is useful to me in the ministry. And Mark humbly served Paul, even though Paul defined him as a loser in the beginning. But he still comes back and serves Paul. And he served so well that at least four important New Testament figures notice who Don Mark is and say, this is a great kid, right? Barnabas was the first one. 
obviously Paul recognizes it now. Paul's writing to Timothy, so John Mark is with Timothy, serving with him. That's the third. And we know from 1 Peter 5.13 that Peter as well. Everybody saw Mark was not a loser, but actually a winner. You know, the history of Mark is pretty clear. There's some traditions, but Mark actually went to Egypt and started a church in Alexandria where they worshiped everything but Jesus, right? And so he brought converts to Jesus and people around that area began to get angry because this man was winning people away from traditional gods. So eventually in AD 68, they put a rope around his neck and they dragged him through the city until he was dead. He never bailed after that first time got a second chance. Mark 8.34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You want to celebrate in honor of John Mark? Be strong. Be strong in the Lord, even in view of the cost. Secondly, serve God by serving those whom he loves. And thirdly, keep looking forward. Past your mistakes, because God is never, ever finished with us. I want to pray, and then I want us to worship. Let's end this on a note of worship and rejoicing that Jesus has come and defeated Satan, sin, and death. Father, thank you. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for his determination. Thank you that you gave him, as well as other people, a second chance. And we remember ourselves, how many second chances we have with you. Lord, help us. Help us as we celebrate the first Advent to do so in joy and as we wait for the second Advent to do so in the heart of servanthood as your servant Mark has taught us in his gospel. And now we turn our hearts to you to worship, lift up our spirits, help us to engage with you now and experience the true love of Christ as we sing our praises to you. We pray in Jesus' name.